You're listening to season four of The Lively Show, episode 219. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, and welcome to season four. Today's episode is sponsored by Hum Nutrition. I have loved finding out about Hum Nutrition because it is so easy to figure out exactly what supplements are right for you. They've made it so simple. All you do is go on to humnutrition.com, take a lifestyle quiz, which basically asks you questions about how you eat and how you exercise so they can get an assessment for what your lifestyle's like and what your needs may be for your nutrition and your supplements. You get a free nutritionist report based on the quiz and the answer that you've shared, and then they give you recommendations. As you customize your order, you can save 25% when you order three or more supplements. So this just makes it super simple. You don't have to stand in a health food store like I have many times before, totally overwhelmed by all of the plethora of options out there. This just makes it super simple with the nutritionist guided advice given your unique situation. When I also found out about them, I wanted to make sure that I could really trust the quality of these supplements as well. So I spoke with my friend, Faze Nazarelli, who actually is a friend of mine who also happened to own a supplement company and used to sell all different types of supplements in his store as well. So I wanted to find out from him. So once I got the Hum Nutrition supplements, I showed them to him and said, hey, are these good quality? And he said, yes. They're bioavailable sources of these nutrients and they're very high quality. So with the phase approval and how simple, easy, pretty, and straightforward this is, I can only say I am loving it and I hope you check it out as well. In order to do this, all you have to do is go over to humnutrition.com slash lively and get 10% off your first order using the code lively and get the personalized product recommendations courtesy of the registered dietitian. Again, all you have to do is go to humnutrition.com slash lively and use the code lively to get 10% off your first order as well. I hope you love it as much as I do. As I said, guys, this is season four of The Lively Show. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our Quantum Living series. And if you were listening to those for the first time, great. I hope you enjoyed them. And if you re-listen to them in succession, hopefully you're starting to see the direction that I have been growing personally in my own awareness and consciousness and the direction I foresee, although let's be honest, you never know with me where I'm going next with the show, but that's what I foresee being the groundwork for what is to come. In addition, over this little past May, this little interlude that we've had the Quantum Living episodes going live, we passed our 7 million download mark of The Lively Show. Thank you so much. Someone recently asked me who loves business and marketing at AFest how I share the show and how people find out about it. And much to his probably you know, shock or horror from a marketing perspective, I told him I literally just care a lot a lot, a lot, a lot about how I can share content I hope will help you. That is truly it. There's nothing else I don't go out there and I'm not currently paying for any advertising or anything of the sort. I just share on Instagram, share on the email list, and I share with you here through whatever version of, I don't know, media capture, iTunes, Stitcher, 
downloading directly from the site, whatever you're doing, thank you for listening and thank you for sharing the show with people you believe it may resonate with as well. That's truly how this has gotten out there and I just thank you so much. You guys mean so much to me and whenever I'm feeling like, you know what, maybe I wanna take a longer break or maybe I wanna do something else, I truly sit there and I go, no. I need to keep doing this. Not that I need, need's not really in my vocabulary anymore, but let's just say need. Let's just say I want to keep doing this for you because you guys mean so much to me and I know that what I'm learning is something I want to share with you. So in terms of where I've been, if you want a little catch up before we dive into the show, today I am speaking to you from Lisbon, but in May to do a catch up of where I've been throughout the entire month. I started the month in Byron Bay at a channeling retreat, a la Abraham Hicks and intuition writing. Yes, there's more to be shared on that subject, I'm sure in season four as well. But I started May in Byron Bay. That also hit my one year anniversary mark of traveling full time. Also, then I went to Sydney and Amsterdam and had fun in those places as well. And then I headed to Ibiza, Spain for A-Fest and had an amazing time there, which also kind of brought me into a whole new plethora of people and ideas for the show. So stay tuned. I have a few people that I want to have on from the A-Fest experience as well here on the show. So you'll be getting a taste of what I experienced there. And then I headed next to Barcelona and then I landed like literally two hours ago here in Lisbon and I'm speaking to you. So I've got so much to share with you that came through this last month and overall in general. And there's, I'm going to be honest, some crazy quote unquote stuff that I am so excited to share with you. Depending on your level of exploration in the woo-woo, transrational, rational, quantum mechanics world, depending where you're at at this, there's some stuff that is going to be really exciting that some people are going to say, yay, I'm so excited Jess is talking about this. Or there'll be people that are totally new to a lot of stuff I'm about to share. But either way, I am super excited to do so. Now let's move on to today's show. So we're kicking this one off. Before I go into the crazy spaceship land, you're like, whoa, Jess, you have like left the orbit of our planet. Before we go to that level, we're going to start with Dan Harris, who's an anchor for ABC News Good Morning America. So you may know him from the weekend edition of Good Morning America. He's also the author of 10% Happier. I asked Dan to come on the show because he is someone talking about meditation, but from a totally different perspective than the 99.99999% of people that I could have on the show. Instead of being someone who's a huge cheerleader for this, he was actually a very reluctant skeptic when it came to mindfulness and meditation. He's firmly or historically has been firmly in the rational side of the pre-rational, rational, trans-rational spectrum, although because of a panic attack that led him to, through a kind of circuitous path into mindfulness, he's becoming or has become more open to mindfulness and these more trans-rational ideas from a very scientific and agnostic perspective. So... I knew I wanted to have him on because he represents a different point of view around subjects that I know so many of us all completely are totally behind. A lot of us listening to the show are yoga instructors or coaches, and so we're all, generally speaking, there's a lot of us that kind of think similarly, but I love Dan's perspective because it's fresh and often counter to a lot of the points of view that that I basically could have had. In the episode, we'll talk about Eckhart Tolle and his take on Eckhart, which is very different than mine. We'll talk about spirituality and how to overcome the obstacles you may have to meditating, why 
Some kinds of worry, damn believe, are actually good. And then also, most importantly, I think this episode is going to be awesome for anyone looking to share meditation with people in their lives that they don't think will get the woo-woo or the, you know, the people that are kind of like Dan that were very skeptical to start when it comes to things like meditation. So I thought Dan's perspective may be useful for anyone looking to introduce meditation to someone else in their lives that may not resonate on the same level of someone like, for example, Eckhart Tolle. Let's go to the show. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to start presenting your point of view and all of the things that you've been learning with my audience. But before we get started, let's start with how you got to where you are. Yeah, so the basic backstory is that I freaked out on national television. Uh, I'm a news anchor at ABC News, and back in 2004, I was on Good Morning America. I was filling in as what's called a newsreader. The newsreader, that's the person who comes on at the top of each hour and reads a bunch of the headlines. And so I had done the job before. I had you know, filled in in this role many times, uh, so I didn't have any reason to foresee what was about to happen to me, which was that I had a panic attack. I was a couple of seconds into reading the headlines off of the teleprompter and I just lost it. I, my heart was racing, my, my lungs seized up, my palms were sweating, my mind, you know, mutinied on me and, uh, I, I was unable to breathe and I had to quit right in the middle of my little newscast and toss it back to the main anchors of the show. So that sucked and uh, was very embarrassing. And, and then there was something even more embarrassing, which was that uh, when I went to go see a doctor about this panic attack, he asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what was going on. And one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I had to admit that, yes, I did. I had spent a lot of time as a young reporter after 9-11 in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Israel and the West Bank. And I was in Iraq six times. And when I came home from one of my really long trips in Iraq, I got depressed and didn't actually even know I was depressed and very, and very, very, very stupidly self-medicated with cocaine and ecstasy. And my doctor explained to me that even though my drug use was pretty intermittent and I, I never got high when I was working or when I was on the air or anything like that, it, it overall, it, it sort of raised the level of adrenaline in my brain and primed me to freak out. And... So that was a huge aha moment for me, the combination of having the panic attack and then being told that it was the result of my own toweringly stupid behavior. I'd love to go deeper. This is all about, it kind of seems to spark from the depression. What do you think caused that depression? And was that the first time you were depressed or not? Absolutely not the first time I was depressed. I have wrestled with depression since I was a little boy. The first I can remember was when my parents sent me to a shrink because I was worried about nuclear war, not just like vaguely worried about it, like consumed with fear about it. How old were you there? I don't know. I'm not thinking eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that range. Pretty young. Was it when you were watching the news? I mean, how at that age did you even know? Yes. Huh, isn't that ironic that you then go towards the news? What do you think brought you towards the news if that was what caused so much stress at such a young age? You know, the, that's, the answer to that is a little embarrassing. But I think as a adolescent and college student, had the news and movies mixed up in my head, and I was interested in both. And I went to film school, actually, for a semester when I was in undergrad and realized I was terrible at, at uh, making movies. So kind of that left me with the news. Both of them just seemed fun and glamorous or whatever. So I don't really, at least consciously, there was no connection between 
that childhood distress and my ultimate career decision, frankly. But, you know, just as kind of desire to be in a really interesting, high stakes, high profile profession, I guess, would be the answer uh, of what drew me to, to the news business. And in terms of the depression, yeah, I mean, it had been a recurring thing in my life. But the, the, the depression that led me to use drugs uh, in my early 30s, you know, I don't think it's the classic case that a lot of people would imagine where I went to war zones and got traumatized. I don't actually think I was traumatized. I think I was addicted to the thrill of it. And when I got home, you know, when I got back to New York City, even though my life as a you know, TV news guy was still pretty interesting, it paled in comparison to the nonstop IV drip of adrenaline that is being in a war zone. And that is what I, the sort of withdrawal from adrenaline is I think what threw me into a depression there. Really? That's so interesting. So it wasn't really a low, it's the absence of a high that dropped you into it. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a war reporter with vastly more experience than I have um, named Christopher Hedges, I believe his name is. And he has said, war is a drug. And I think that's true, at least in my experience. It's awful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to glorify war at all. I mean, it is, it's horrifying. But when you're a journalist and young and idealistic, you know, I believe, and I still believe very much in the importance of what we do, you know, bearing witness to the tip of the American spear is really important. And so I was caught up in all of that. And, you know, and also on the crass end of it, you know, the, it was good for my career, let's be honest. And uh, it was exciting. And I got swept up in all of that, the high mended part of it, the crass parts of it, and it blew up in my face. Yeah, I remember watching Whiskey Foxtrot Tango. I've been traveling a lot on planes and that was one of the in-flight movies you could watch. And it kind of touches on a lot of these themes you're talking about in terms of the adrenaline and the kind of perverse urge to create things to share on the news, even if it's not in like a crazy freak out mode, but to find those things so that they could get on the news. It was a very interesting movie that gave me some insights to what I was reading from you and your book. Obviously, it's not the real thing, but it was a fascinating just introduction to that. Do you think that the adrenaline that you're speaking of is also something that's addictive on the parts of those that are participating in the war actively themselves? And it's kind of this perpetuating thing because of the adrenaline there too? I think there's there are lots of different psychologies at play, but you know, there certainly seem to be indications that for the active combatants, there's an adrenaline component as well. And you see returning uh, veterans engaging in risky behavior that is often cropped up to be um, compensatory, you know, like driving way, way too fast or using drugs as a way to kind of get a, a squirt of adrenaline that would compensate for what they were getting in a much bigger way overseas. And I hasten to add, I don't want to compare my experience at all to the men and women who serve in our armed forces. They, you know, the amount of trauma, adrenaline, danger that they deal with is, you know, exponentially greater than I faced as a journalist. And, and frankly, there are other journalists who have way more experience than me. But I can only speak with certitude about my own experience. Yeah, it's so interesting that we're starting off with a, a situation of really high adrenaline and high stakes. And then what ends up going is the initial band-aid is to kind of recreate the same high. And then the solution seems to go the opposite direction to really slow the brain down and simplify and not avoid adrenaline, but find other chemicals in the brain that come through meditation. Is that kind of the, the arc of the story here? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, uh, meditation is about 
confronting one of the fundamental facts of the human situation that very few people bother to point out to us, which is that we have uh, minds and our thinking, that we have a voice in our heads, this sort of inner narrator that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long. And what meditation does is allow you to see that clearly so that it doesn't own you. And that has a direct bearing on the sequence of events that led up to my panic attack. So it, that was the result of the voice in my head saying, yeah, dude, go cover wars without thinking about the psychological consequences. And, and then that allowed me to come home and get depressed without having enough self-awareness to see that I was depressed. And then the voice in my head was like, yeah, you should do a bunch of cocaine. And it all blew up in my face. So I see meditation as kind of the antidote to the cascade of mindlessness that created the most embarrassing moment of my life. And, and that can lead on a smaller scale to the that we're embarrassed about in our own lives, you know, like eating too much when we're not hungry or saying something stupid to our spouse or our boss uh, or not listening to people and checking your email in the middle of conversations. All these sort of micro hostilities or micro mistakes that we make all day long. To me, that's when meditative rubber hits the road. Okay, so how do you get from that doctor's office when you're admitting to doing drugs to meditation? Not quickly. So there was a pretty significant interregnum there. My initial move after realizing that I had needed to stop using drugs and obviously had some issues uh, was to go see a shrink once or twice a week uh, in, for years. Um, and it took a, a bunch, a whole wine, weird and windy series of events for me to get to meditation. One factor was that I had been assigned uh, against my will uh, by a guy named Peter Jennings, who was my boss at ABC News, to cover faith and spirituality for ABC News. And I did not want to do that because I am a lifelong agnostic slash atheist. I would say I've gone uh, over the course of the years from atheist to agnostic. And, uh, you know, I was raised by scientists. I'm married to a scientist. Wasn't really into faith or spirituality. But one of the many good things that came of that out of that assignment was I ended up reading a book by Eckhart Tolle. I know you're a fan um, and I'm sure your audience is familiar with him. And he was the first person I ever heard talk about the voice in the head. I found Eckhart ultimately frustrating. I went and interviewed him after reading his book and did some stories on him as as, uh, as part of my beat of you know covering faith and spirituality in America and in the world. And I found him correct, like his diagnosis is correct, but not useful. Um, I didn't find a lot of practical advice in, in his books and in pursuing some sort of way to manage the voice in the head that he so eloquently describes in his books, that is when I got the meditation. Okay. So it wasn't through Eckhart specifically the meditation came, but the awareness of ego came from Eckhart. Bingo. Yeah. I love Eckhart for that too. The power of now and his explanation of the ego as we describe it here on the show all of the time has been profoundly life-changing for myself as well. Like sometimes it's not even step one isn't meditation in the cushion. Sometimes step one is awareness of the ego throughout your every single day before you even get to the cushion because that's often what's stopping you from getting on the cushion in the first place. Is that what you found too? I think that is exactly right. And I think, you know, I make fun of Eckhart Tolle a lot uh, in, you know, whenever I get a chance. But I have to admit uh, that he changed my life, that reading that book from him changed my life. He pointed out this thunderous truism that, again, that we have a voice in our heads. And 
that set me off on the path that ultimately led me to meditation. So in many ways, he's this kind of the sine qua non of my current situation. I think he's, you know, uh, I think the way he talks at times can be very off-putting to a lot of people like me who are skeptical um, just at baseline. And I, you know, while he does actually include some practical stuff, including discussions of meditation in some of his works, I don't think he really puts it front and center. And I think that speaks to just the kind of the school out of which he emerges. So I have beefs with him, but they're not, I don't think he's in any way like a force for ill in the world. Yeah, you know, my thought on that is sometimes it's like, think of like frequencies. So he's just like on a different wavelength, right? So parts of the message resonate and hit home and other parts, he's just like at such a high or fast or slow, whichever way you want to look at it. It's almost like Yoda, right? When you're watching like Luke Skywalker listen to Yoda, it's not like he's like fully getting it and is like, yeah, man, I'm totally living it. I am already there too, right? There's kind of this like puzzlement around it. That said, I kind of feel like Eckhart is, my personal opinion is that he is saying those things. It's just when you're not in the vibrational frequency of it, which are crazy words to use, and I'm sure you're like, what? <laughs> those words are not in my vocabulary, Jess, but just maybe that's part of it is like sometimes it's, that's not the vehicle for which it's going to land for us, but for others at a different point of view or time in their lives, it will. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, notwithstanding the invocation of vibrational frequencies, I think that it's possible that the personal transformation that he describes experiencing himself, this spiritual awakening that he says he experienced, I think it's impossible that he's right and that he's speaking to us from a very different state of mind. And that is sometimes hard for us to understand him because he's on a, he's somewhere else. I also think it's possible that you could make an argument that and I think he even may say this. It's been a while since I've uh, kind of poured over his texts in any, you know, in a, in a Talmudic fashion. But I think he may even say that part of the way he you may not understand your conscious, your ego may not understand what he's saying, but he designed what he's saying to kind of circumvent it and work on other levels. So maybe that's even true. I mean, maybe that's even true. Okay. You want to get in there? Dan, you want to get in it? Sure. All right. Like real in it? Like I wasn't going to get in it, this in it? Yeah. Bring it on. You want me to tell you what I really think is happening? And this will be fun because, like, I'm probably in between you and him, right? So I may be a translator of sorts. And maybe and you don't have to go there with me. Those listening will be able to either go there with me or stay there with you, right? I spent a week with him at a retreat in Costa Rica this October. And here's what I honestly think is happening. So I do believe, like he says, that he has this experience of a consistent state of non-thinking or the ability to choose thinking when he wants to. And when he's not thinking and using his logical mind, he actually spoke about this in the retreat as well, that Socrates, it is believed, did the same thing. So the Socratic method of this question and answer format of the student asked the teacher the question, he made some comment about Socrates that said that and I don't remember the direct translation, but something about I know nothing. So what he makes this assertion in the conference about is that Socrates potentially was channeling. So channeling would be removing the, the personal frequency, the personal energy or the ego is what we're describing this, right? Removing that and speaking from a different place, a different truth, a different 
essence that may be universal if you want to believe that or it may not. But I think that the reason you're saying that he doesn't resonate or that it's hard to understand or that it's out of our reach or that he's saying he's circumventing and hitting different levels is because he's actually speaking from a totally different level that is coming through him in a place that is not received by the ego that we're thinking with predominantly ourselves 24-7. What do you think? Look, how the hell do I know? You know, like, I mean, I have to have some humility here. I think what you're describing is, you know, a coherent thesis. I don't know if it's true. I think, you know, I'll just repeat what I said a, a few sentences ago. I think it, humility is really important. And I just don't know. But I think it's all very intriguing. And I don't think, you know, I've met many people who I personally have concluded are full of shit and are charlatans. I would not put Eckhart in that bucket. And I don't have any way to measure it. I'm, I'm only speaking about my own personal intuition here. But he seems to me to be not like motivated by money, although he makes a lot of it. Uh, and he seems to me, if you read his writings, to be a, a really smart guy. Yeah, he doesn't really. And I'd have to reread the books more closely myself before I make the statement an accurate one. But I can say he really talks about eradicating ego. But I don't or do not remember the real message of once it's gone, what's left, right? So once it's gone, what's left is not ego. So what is not ego if so much of our personalities is left to that aspect. And I think he may be an example of and maybe the Dalai Lama as well, right? As examples of what is left beyond ego. And maybe it's a totally different experience than what we're used to hearing day to day. It'd be interesting to see how Eckhart Tolle would handle being in the Dalai Lama's position, because the Dalai Lama has a lot more pressing worldly concerns than Eckhart Tolle. You know, he's dealing with the Chinese. He's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who look to him as their leader in exile. Um, he's on the world political stage in a really prominent way. And Eckhart Tolle doesn't have to deal with those kind of exigencies all the time. So how calm would Tolle be? How calm would Tolle be after an afternoon with my two-year-old? I don't know. I think that would be, those would be interesting tests to run. So, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama is another person that I don't just sort of, uh, you know, I mean, I've spent a little bit of time with him. There's a lot there to admire, but I'm not going to like blindly say, you know, he's the avatar of perfection. But he definitely has to maintain and does maintain a lot of wisdom and clarity and calm in the face of a fire hose of stresses that totally does not face. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. It, they're totally different experiences. One was, like I think you said in the book, picked at two, and the other was at 29 about to kill himself, and he just decided not to after this <laughs> intense experience. So totally different life paths to get to where they are too, which may result in, obviously, the rest of their lives being as they are. So let's go back to one of the things I know you lay out in your book, 10% Happier A Lot, which is that you think meditation has or had, it might be a past tense now, massive PR problems. Why do you think that's the case? I think, you know, we're in an interesting stage. So when I wrote 10% Happier, I, my, I, my primary or one of my primary objectives was to make meditation look less weird I mean, because I was of the because it, it looked weird to me that was a big reason why I, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was you know for weirdos and was going to be deeply deeply annoying and bullshit and what really helped me get over the hump was the science that's definitely in its early stages but strongly suggests that there's a, a whole panoply of health benefits to be derived from short amounts of daily practice 
So when I wrote the book, I really thought that meditation needed some help on the PR front. I think that's still the case in, in some ways, but I, in the three and, and a half years since the book came out, I think we've seen some big societal changes on meditation. I, I'm not giving myself credit for that. I think I may have played a small role, but really the popularization of the science, the, the fact that it's gotten much more uh, publicity in the intervening years, the fact that very high profile and aspirational figures in the worlds of sports and entertainment um, are adopting meditation and talking about it publicly, I think it's made a huge difference. So I think meditation is becoming more socially acceptable. But that, you know, I, I have a suspicion that that's primarily on the coasts and that there's plenty of work that could be done uh, in the rest of the country, if not the world. That's a really interesting point. What do you think it would take? Because I think you are one of those voices. That's why I want to have you on the show. You're not at the person that's pushing the craziest edge of any of this stuff that I will have on the show for sure, right? You're this really grounded rationalist here saying, if the science shows it, this is something that I trust. And if it doesn't, I'm going to maybe kind of go on my intuition, but really I can't promise you anything. So with that in mind, what do you think? And also just knowing the media and everything that you've experienced, what do you think it would take to make it a more mainstream thing? Let's say, like you just said, where it's less popular, or maybe in the middle of America, as you just described. I think we're heading there. I think that we're just on a pretty nice path toward that happening, that um, it, it's not dissimilar to look in the 80s, both sushi and yoga were weird, and now they're not. Um, and, and it just takes a little time for that message to get out there. And, you know, in the, I often make the joke that in the 1940s, if you told somebody you were going running, they would have said, who's chasing you? And what happened that to change that was that we got a really large body of science that suggests that physical exercise can have all these benefits, both psychological and physiological. And now it's totally socially acceptable. And I think that's where we're headed with meditation. It's just it's not the type of thing that will snap. You'll be able to snap your fingers and happen overnight. I think we're going to see an increasing accumulation of scientific research and an increasing number of high profile people who do it and talk about it and talk about the benefits. And you'll have increasing access meditation studios opening up in cities all over the country that's already happening they're in austin miami chicago la new york you have a proliferation of apps meditation apps i have one called 10 percent happier but there are a lot there are dozens of them the, the ones that i've looked at they're all really good and so i think this we're just seeing it play out and we're heading there one of the things you address in the book, which I think is really powerful for people that may be resistant or know people that are resistant from that really high power competitive or even maybe adrenaline based societies, the people being concerned about losing their edge or the hungriness that comes potentially even from the ego voice itself. What are your thoughts on that? I dedicate much of the book to this and I'm going to talk about it a lot in the, my next book too. I think this is a big issue and one that I have a deep sympathy for because I feared this too. People don't want to meditate because they think they'll lose their edge. Uh, you know, I think in the book I talked about a comedian friend of mine who said, you know, he being judgmental is like what allows him to succeed in life. And he thought if he meditated too much, he wouldn't be judgmental anymore. There's this romantic fantasy that depression is highly correlated with great art um, and that if they get too happy, they won't be able to produce great art. I mean, if they lose their inner intensity, the amount, the sort of intense self-criticism that a lot of people who are successful subject themselves to, that they'll lose their drive and motivation. I was interviewing recently a police officer who worried that 
If he was too mindful, he wouldn't be effective in highly dangerous situations. And I think the opposite is true. First of all, let me just say that I think that a certain amount of stress and plotting and planning is actually important. The proposition here is not that we're going to you know, remove all stress if you start meditating. We're not all going to be Eckhart Tolle. It's going to be a gradual process of mitigating stress. So it's not going to go away like that. And also some stress is good. What I think is what meditations help me do is draw the line between useless rumination and what I call constructive anguish. So a certain amount of stress is good, but we tend to make our suffering worse than it needs to be. And having meditation on board as a way to kind of sift or sort between when we're doing useful, we're engaged in sort of useful hand-wringing, and then when we've crossed the line into just creating and wasting our energy on stress that's just going to make us unpleasant and wear down our resiliency, that kind of self-awareness that you can generate through meditation that allows you to do that makes you much more effective. It makes you much better at your job and I think can make you much more creative. Yes. I love that you said it. I need to ask, what is useful hand-wringing then? There is no magic formula, unfortunately. Um, my meditation teacher has a great way for individuals to gauge it for themselves which is that on the 17th time you're running through all the awful ramifications of, I don't know, some conversation that you had with your boss that didn't go so well or the potential of missing a flight or whatever, ask yourself a simple question. Is this useful? It's a really helpful question to ask because we tend to believe that if we chew over a problem ad nauseum, ad infinitum, that we'll get to an answer. But at some point, actually, you're just wasting time increasing the release of cortisol in your brain and making yourself less effective. And your move is better. The, the better move in that point is to think about something else. And so I wish I could say, hey, you know, there's a E equals MC squared kind of clean formulation that you can use to nail this down, but it doesn't work that way. Yes. And I know right now you're focusing on helping people deal with the obstacles to meditating itself. So now you're, you're kind of like people get the meditation thing in a lot of parts, but there's obstacles actually doing it. So what are you finding there and how are you helping people or do you want to help people? Yeah, so I mean, as I said before, I, I, I naively thought that it, when I wrote 10% Happier that if I just made the practice more socially acceptable and kind of and, and intriguing to people, like that everybody would just do it. So I just didn't understand much about human behavior change and how complicated habit formation is. For me, it wasn't that complicated because I was really motivated by pain, by depression and anxiety. And I, once it became clear to me that the research was pretty strong, that meditation could be good for, uh, for anxiety and depression. And then, and then subsequently, when I started doing it and seeing that, in fact, it worked, I really haven't had a problem establishing and maintaining a habit. However, I now know after three years of traveling around the country and the world talking to people about meditation that it is very, very common for people to understand intellectually after I've explained it to them or somebody else has explained it to them that, yeah, meditation is probably something I should do, but then they don't do it. And then another thing that happened to me that kind of lit my hair on fire about this issue is that I uh, started a company to teach people how to meditate through an app. And in the course of uh, doing our marketing research, where we talk to our customers, and more interestingly, we talk to our ex-customers about why they aren't meditating, what the obstacles are, I really started to see that this is a huge issue for people. 
and that it wasn't enough for me to write that first book. I needed to do more. I needed to create an app that was sticky and that works for people. And I needed to, my team and I, we needed to really get under the hood and, and do a thorough taxonomy of all the obstacles to meditation and help people get over them. And so I'm actually working on a book that's going to come out at New Year's, which is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, a 10% Happier How-To Guide. And we, where we really, we took a road trip across the country in a big, stupid rock tour bus and met people all over the country who want to meditate but aren't and created a list of the common obstacles and gave you tips for overcoming them. What are some of the big ones and what are some of the ways to overcome them? Okay, the two biggies are people think that they need to clear their minds in order to meditate. So I call this the I suck at this concern. And the other biggie is time. I don't have time for this. So I'll, I'll, I'll do them in order. My nemesis is the idea that this, this commonly held belief that you, in order to meditate, you need to clear your mind or stop thinking. That's impossible unless you're enlightened or dead. But yet many people, very smart people think, okay, I, meditation sounds good. I like the science, but I can't do it. And this is just such a pernicious misunderstanding. Uh, meditation is not about clearing your mind. It's about focusing your mind for nanoseconds at a time, usually on your breath. So you're sitting, you're feeling the sensations of your breath coming in and going out. And then you're going to get lost a million times. Uh, you're going to start thinking about, you know, where do gerbils run wild? Uh, why do celebrities only marry other celebrities? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then you notice, oh, I've gotten distracted. And you start again and again and again and again. That is the act of meditation. That is not failing. That is succeeding. So really, this just requires a attitude shift, a cognitive shift, a shift in the frame. So for type A people who expect to win at stuff, as I did, frankly, that you're going to you know, sit down and ace this meditation thing and stop thinking, and then you realize how hard that is, and you just assume I could never do this, and you never do it again, I think you just need to understand that this is like a golf game with a million mulligans that you're not trying to reach some special state, that the act of meditation is getting lost and starting again. And that it has that very thing that people think of as failing, you know, getting distracted and, and then having to go back to their breath, has its salutary effects. Because when you notice that you've become distracted, you're seeing the voice in the head in action. And you are distancing yourself from it. The very act of catching yourself mulling and masticating and planning and plotting and scheming and worrying and noticing, oh, that's not me. That's just thinking um, happening as an impersonal process. And then you go back to your breath is enormously valuable. And that allows you not to get yanked around by the voice in your head because you're seeing it for what it is. And then on the issue of time, I don't diminish this at all. I think people where we are really stressed these days and where there are a lot of demands on our time. And I think the important thing to point out to people is that meditation does not need to be a time suck does not need to be some big elaborate thing. I think five to 10 minutes a day is great. And uh, somebody we met on our trip had a great formulation too, which is daily-ish. You know, you don't want to get overly dogmatic about it. I meditate every day, but if you aim to do it every day, five to 10 minutes a day, that is phenomenal. And frankly, even one minute counts, which is why on our app, we have all these one minute meditations. I really think it's about engineering a frequent collision with the voice in your head. So doing it enough, even if it's in short doses, so that you're starting to see your ego for what it is and that it's not controlling you as much. 
I think that's a wonderful way to describe meditation and just awareness of the ego in general. So one of the things I find so fascinating is that your life seems to have positioned you at this time in reality in life right now to be a perfect person to be a spokesperson for meditation for so many people that aren't resonating with the people that have been sharing from other points of view. So I, do you feel like you have any feeling of that yourself or is that not something you ascribe to your personal journey? No, I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky that there's basically no other time in my life where I've been ahead of a curve. I'm, you know, I, I, that has never happened before. I happen to have stumbled upon meditation slightly before it became cool. And I had an intuition, which was that most of the books about meditation that were out there were really annoying. And even though they were really useful, if you could get past the pan flute music, that most skeptical people who were like me weren't going to read them ever. And that I just thought that my intuition was that if I could write a book about meditation that used the word a lot and made a lot of jokes, that it would probably cut through with some people. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, no publisher wanted to buy my book. So I, you know, I got like one small offer in the end, but I, I couldn't even get meetings at most publishing houses. And at the time there wasn't, you know, it was not, not like the world was saying, yeah, you, Dan Harris, as a B-level network news anchor talking about this random meditation thing are really on to something. But I, you know, with the support of my wife and just kind of really seeing how useful it was in my own personal life, I had this core intuition that that there's there was something here i also got like incredible support from abc news they were just like irrationally supportive of this little side project of mine and i think in the end uh it's paid off and i feel incredibly fortunate that i followed my and i know this is a buzzword for you my intuition oh it's so interesting that it's flowed this way for you. You came from a place of striving, striving, striving. I need to force myself to get into any risk-taking opportunity. They'll get me on camera, et cetera. You had this career-chasing mentality pre-meditation. Post-meditation, do you feel like you approach your career any differently? And have you seen any different results because of it? Yeah, you know, it's complicated. So I definitely, you know, my TV agent loves to point out anytime there is a difference between my public presentation as a meditation evangelist and the reality of how anxious I can get over my career at times. He loves pointing that out. And I'm always like, dude, my book is called 10% Happier. I'm not presenting myself as some sort of imperturbable, enlightened being. So, you know, I am absolutely capable of getting sweaty and anxious about my career. So I don't want to say that that doesn't happen because it does. But I actually think that there's a, there's a certain amount of that that's healthy. We do have to you know, the times when I'm overly relaxed are actually the times when I screw up. So I, 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 you know, I talk in the book about my father's motto that the price of security is insecurity. And I still believe that's true, but with an asterisk, which is that, you know, until it's not useful. So insecurity is useful until it's not. And you have to, and I have to constantly titrate when I'm engaged in um, useless rumination or when it's useful, you know, sort of constructive anguish. But, you know, being able to sort of tone that down, the volume of the voice in my head, I think really has changed. The amount of worrying I do about my work has gone way down and the amount of sort of unpleasant side effects have gone way down that I'm easier to live with. It's easier for me to drop whatever kind of neurotic obsession I might be, you know, stewing over at any given moment and pay more attention to, you know, my colleagues or my kid 
for my wife. I'm not perfect at this, but that has definitely gotten better. And then the other thing I would say, and I think this is probably more the direction you were pushing me in, but is that, you know, I live in a very, uh, as a morning television anchor, I anchor Good Morning America on the weekends. There's a lot of extemporizing that's demanded of you in that job. And I've noticed that, and also a lot of extemporizing that's demanded of me as somebody who now, you know, I grant a lot of interviews to people. I get interviewed quite a bit. And dropping my preconceived notions, dropping, you know, this helps even when I'm conducting interviews, not thinking three questions ahead, really listening to what's happening right now has helped me be able to be much more spontaneous and makes my work and my life much more interesting. I love that. So are there any internal doubts or resistance that you're currently going through right now? I struggle with doubts about my practice all the time. The I suck at this concern is one that really is huge for me. And, you know, I'm a little bit beyond, I've been doing it for eight years, so I'm a little bit beyond the beginning practice, but I'm still, I would say, you know, at the end of being a beginner stage or maybe, you know, the beginning of being an intermediate stage. And, you know, I, I tape record a lot of my conversations with my meditation teacher. And and when I listen back to him, I'm always asking the same question, was basically, which is essentially, am I doing this right? And a useful antidote to that is just to make a little mental note of doubt. You know, that that's essentially what's happening with me and with anybody who has these concerns is, oh, yeah, I'm doubting myself. And as soon as I do that, as soon as I just label, as soon as I notice that I'm engaged in a spiral, a starburst of thinking around, am I meditating correctly? And just label it internally as, oh, this is just doubt. It takes the teeth out of the whole thing. But the, 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 the problem, if you want to call it that, the quote unquote problem or the challenge of doubting myself is a really big one still for me. And so I have a lot of sympathy with people who, who say, you know, I could never meditate. Absolutely. And here's my last question for you, which I think is going to have two parts to it for you. One is, what would you tell someone who's just starting out on the journey of meditating? And maybe you can reflect on what you've already shared if it applies. But also, what you would tell someone who's meditating and is dealing with the fears around sharing it with others in their lives like you did when you were starting to share too? Okay, so for the first part of it, for anybody who's just getting into meditating now, I'd say good on you. That's great. And this is like the most incredible adventure. It can feel really stupid at times and pointless at times because you're just kind of sitting there watching your breath and whatever. But don't lose sight of the intellectual infrastructure of this thing. You know, just that you are exploring. You know, we spend so much time working on our cars, on our interior design, on our bodies, on our social media presence, but very little time working on the one filter through which we experience everything. And that's our mind. And you're doing that. And that is an amazing adventure. And it's easy at times to lose that kind of inspirational spark. So I would advise you to like, listen to podcasts, read good books. And that I think will keep you engaged. So the other thing, the other question you asked was about how do you talk about this with other people? And I would say very carefully, because it's easy to turn people off. And I've learned that the hard way. There was a great cartoon that ran in the New Yorker not long ago, and it has two women having lunch. And one of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. And I think that is, that is really true about meditation, that we, you know, we get excited about meditation, and we think everybody should do it, and we become very annoying. And you know, until recently, until very recently, my wife did not meditate. And I was smart enough not to lecture her about it because I knew that she would be the shortcut to her never doing it. And so she came to it on her own. And, you know, I, I, basically my rule is I don't talk about meditation to anybody unless they ask. 
and then I'll talk. You know, you call me up, and I'm on Skype with you, and I'll talk for an hour. But generally speaking, I don't talk about it unless somebody really wants to talk about it, because I know that finger wagging and proselytizing is counterproductive. Actually, that's a wonderful point for anyone that wants their spouse to start meditating with them. You chose selectively not to encourage her to do it at all? Yeah. I mean, I think she told me the other day that when I first started, I was pretty annoying and did lecture her. And obviously, the results were bad. Um, And so for the you know, most of the last eight years that I've been meditating, I haven't, I've not said a word. I think I picked this up from some of my Christian pastor friends, because, you know, after I started covering faith and spirituality for ABC News, some of the pastors who I became friends with would tell me that instead of lecturing people about Christ, the best thing to do is act in a Christ-like way, and that people will see your behavior and it will find will find it attractive and then may ask you about it subsequently. And I think that's really true about meditation. There's an expression in the meditation world that it's better to be a Buddha than a Buddhist. And so I, I you know, I just think it's basic understanding of human nature. People don't like to be lectured to and let them come to you by behaving in a way by showing the benefits in your in your own personal comportment as opposed to hammering people over the head with it. Oh, that's beautiful. Dan, thank you so much for coming in the show and sharing your experience with us. It has been awesome to talk to you. You ask great questions. I'm really uh, grateful to you for having me on and uh, here in admiration of like how you're managing to like live in this uh, sort of itinerant fashion that you're living in right now. I'm eager to see how it all plays out. Well, thank you. And that means a lot coming from someone who does this professionally, <laughs> asking questions. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely onto something. Keep it up. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show again. If you want to send Dan a message, you can do so over on Twitter at Dan B as in boy Harris. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C as in Chiado Lively, which is a neighborhood here in Lisbon that is close to where I'm staying. For show notes for this episode, hop over to JessLively.com slash Dan Harris. And before I share where I'm going next on my journey, let's talk about today's sponsor, Squarespace.com. Squarespace is quite honestly the source if you're looking to create a new website. I used to do business coaching for many years. It is the place I recommend to go if you are looking to create a beautiful website for whatever type of business you're looking to start, as long as you don't wanna make the designing of your website your full-time job. If you're just looking to get started as fast as possible, but you care about design, you care about things looking great, and you care about the design looking up-to-date, modern, and basically extremely professional, and you don't wanna spend a million hours or a million dollars on it, go over to Squarespace and give this a try. You can do it for free for 14 days by going over to squarespace.com lively. Then if you do wanna go forward with it, enter the code lively at your checkout to get 10% off of your service. Like I said, I truly do recommend this. We use this for many of our websites through the Just Lively Creative as well. And I highly recommend it because simply the templates are amazing. They're so easy to update and they're so beautiful. Now for a sneak peek, I am here in Lisbon. I am staying in Portugal, I think, through the next week. I may be going to the Algarve this weekend for a hen party or bachelorette weekend, whichever place in the world you live, that's the term you might resonate, hen or bachelorette, for a friend here. And yeah, we'll see where I flow to next. I have a place until next Tuesday, but not really sure where after that. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. Today.